0: Loved ones, we confess our faith today on pages 2 and 3 in your bulletin. We continue in our sermon series on the doctrines of grace, looking at what are called the five points of Calvinism. Today, the first head of doctrine begins with the letter U, unconditional election. Let's confess these words together from the canons of Dort. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby, before the foundation of the world, he has, out of mere grace, according to the of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction. A certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of grace. of salvation, excuse me. I struggled there. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sometimes you're getting ahead of yourself. Let's turn in God's Word now to Romans chapter 9. You all did really well. (laughs) Next time I'm going to mute myself. Romans chapter 9, we pick up here, looking at verses 6 through 24. Hear now the word of Almighty God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also. From the Gentiles. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God remains forever. It's supposed to be a lot colder out now than it is. I'm not complaining, I'm sure you're not either, but some of us who really love snow, skiing, and maybe ice hockey are already dreaming of the day when we'll be able to play outside in those wonderful cold weather activities. Now, if you're playing hockey kids and you have an ice hockey stick, you're not going to be able to just play the game the way it should be, right? You need not only a stick, but you need a puck, you need skates, you need ice, you need a net, and you need players. So it is when it comes to Reformed theology. Unconditional election is a part of what we confess the Bible to teach, but it is not the only part. If you are here today and you're skeptical about Reformed theology, I hope that you can see this is what we believe the Scriptures are teaching. If you're here and you're really passionate about it, I hope you also see that there are doctrines as well that we confess that speak of God's compassion of his steadfast love, that this is not the only thing we believe the Bible to teach. It's a hockey stick, but there's much more than just this. Why is this important? Because this is a crucial part, unconditional election, of our assurance of salvation. This matters for us, for our children. It matters for those who are suffering and have had the suffering, and the loss of children. It matters for evangelism and missions. It matters for prayer and humility and holiness. All of these things flow out of God's purposes in election. The work of salvation must begin somewhere. Unconditional election, we believe, is the teaching of the Bible that says, we don't first seek the Lord. The Lord first seeks us, In eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, God the Father freely and graciously chose some sinners for salvation in Jesus. He brought them by His Spirit to new life in Christ. And He gives us grace in our daily struggle as we are reminded of God's purposes in salvation. We're going to look at some questions today about this doctrine because Paul himself asked those questions. First, let's look at this question of verse 6 of Romans 9. Has God's word and promise failed? Kids, you are studying the catechism, the Heidelberg. Some of you meet with us as we go through it regularly each month, and we always say there are three parts of the catechism, right? Guilt, grace, And gratitude. Do you know where that comes from, kids? The book of Romans. That's why the catechism is structured the way it is. Here in Romans 9, we are in the middle of the section on grace. And Paul, in verses 1 through 5, has poured out his heart. He loves his fellow Jews. And he's grieved because many of them are not trusting in the Messiah. So it says here, he's literally dealing with anguish in his heart over the fact that some of them are not saved, which means as he talks about election, he's doing so in the context of love for the lost, of a desire for them to come to faith in Christ. And he asks this question, God made this promise to Abraham, right? That he will be Abraham's God and Abraham and his descendants will be his people? God fulfills his promises, doesn't he? God is faithful to the covenant of grace, is he not? If so, why then are there people among the ethnic Jews that Paul loves who are not saved? What is happening here? Has God failed in his promise? That's what Paul asks. He says, no, because not all Israel is Israel. Now, what does that mean? It means that not all the people of Israel who are ethnic Jews are circumcised in their hearts, that there's a distinction between covenant and election, between the visible church and the invisible church, that the covenant people is a mixed multitude. There's an external belonging and there's an internal belonging. And Paul's going to say, this is what I said to you in Romans 2 that a true Jew is circumcised in the heart. God's word hasn't failed. Let's look at some examples, Paul says, of this. What about Abraham's children? How many sons did Abraham have kids? Hmm. His first son was Ishmael, born to Hagar. Was that the child of promise? No. He also had six sons by Keturah, They became the Midianites. Is that group the child of promise? No. It's the child born to who? Sarah. Paul is all over the Old Testament in this chapter, by the way. Who's that child? It's Isaac. So God's promise is given sovereignly and graciously, not biologically, not ethnically, not culturally. So then if it's through Isaac, does that mean all the children born to Isaac would then be saved. Because maybe it was because Abraham had different wives, and that was the reason that they all weren't saved. Is that what's going on here? See how Paul's building on this? And he says, no, actually, that's not the case either. Because Isaac and Rebekah had children, same father, same mother, but not only that, they were twins in the same womb. And God, back in Genesis 25, told Rebekah, The older will serve the younger. So this is a quote from Genesis 25. And God told her, two nations are in your womb, Rebekah. They will come out, and they're going to be battling one another. And it will be exactly the opposite of what you expect when you expect the older son to to get the blessing. That's not going to happen here. But this is bigger than just the two of them, Rebekah. Now, she couldn't understand all that, but we look back, and from Esau comes Edom, From Jacob comes Israel. He is renamed Israel, the 12 tribes. Edom and Israel were at each other's throats. Kids, sometimes you really get mad at your brother and sister, don't you? Because you think they did something and I'm going to get them and I want that toy and I want that car. And I didn't think about the car five minutes ago, but now I really think about the car because they got the car. You know what? Mom and dad are no different. We sometimes hide it better, but our of jealousies and selfish ambitions are there in our sinful hearts? We need God's grace just like you do, kids. Well, Esau and Jacob, throughout the Old Testament, we see King David at one point fighting Edom, which is the nation from Esau. We see Edom joining with Babylon to drive Israel out of Jerusalem. We see in the New Testament King Herod and the death of the Two Boys two years old and younger, in Bethlehem, as a part of the fulfillment of this, Herod was an Edomite from the line of Esau. This is the battle of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Satan trying to kill God, which he can't, but Satan trying to kill God's people. So there's a national, big-picture, corporate thing going on here, Absolutely. But Romans 9 is talking about the individuals, isn't it? It's saying there's Jacob as an individual, Esau as an individual. God loved the younger, which also is the pattern of the Old Testament. Ephraim over Manasseh, David over his brothers, Solomon over Adonijah, Rachel over Leah. You see that pattern of the younger rather than the older. Now, is that saying, kids, if you're younger, that means you're better? No. Is that saying if you're older, you can't be saved? No. It's illustrating God's purpose in election. Why did God choose Jacob? Was it because Jacob was such a great guy? No. Was it because Jacob was so moral and obedient? No. Was it because Jacob succeeded where his brother didn't? No. God's Word says none of those things are why God chose Jacob. In fact, Jacob was a twisted, calculating, self-righteous scoundrel. If you look at he and Esau, just on the outward perspective, Esau in many ways was much more likable than Jacob. He's the guy you want to hang with. Kind of laid back and just kind of fun to be around. So, what's going on here? Do you remember the episode when Jacob and Esau... Had the stew and the birthright kids. So Esau's out hunting. He's famished. Jacob and his mom work together to get some food for him. And Jacob says, Sell me your birthright. Esau was a man of passion. He was hungry. Take the birthright. Esau sells it. Jacob thinks he can go around the system and earn God's blessing by his own conniving. So who would you choose? Ultimately, we realize neither one, right? Which would God say would deserve his grace? Neither one. That's the point of grace. Do you remember Jonah? He said, those Ninevites don't deserve God's grace. Well, none of us does, loved ones. Jacob, outwardly circumcised, just like Esau, a part of the visible covenant community like Esau, but only Jacob is in the invisible church, the elect. Why? Because of God's purpose according to election. It pleased God, it was God's will. God has mercy on whom He has mercy. And He says in verse 13 of Romans 9, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's another quote from the Old Testament, it comes from Malachi 1. It's talking of God's judgment on Edom, the nation, which was prophesied by Obadiah. So there is, yes, that big picture perspective, but these are individuals again. Esau was born dead in sin, just like Jacob was. God did not give grace to Esau. When God hates Esau here, it's not saying that he hates him like our vindictive, malevolent, kind of bitter hatred. It's saying that God did not give him the grace and benefits of saving love, that God is holy and righteous and just, and that we all, like Esau, are born children of wrath, and we all deserve the just judgment of God. That's what it's saying here. But what should surprise us even more than that is that God loved Jacob. God untwists the twister. God goes to Jacob, the one who broke his covenant like we do over and over, and gave him undeserving grace. Loved ones, we have a brother who is better than Jacob, even though our sins make us less deserving than Esau. This verse, Romans nine thirteen drives us to the gospel. We must never talk about election apart from the gospel. This is not fatalism. This is not determinism. Christ is the mirror of our election. We were chosen in him. We were predestined Ephesians 1 in him. In him we have redemption through his blood. It's the work of Christ that saves us. It's not how many tears you cry It's not how much you confess or how genuine your repentance is. Yes, we're called to repentance, but those tears and that repentance doesn't save us. Christ does. In love, Ephesians 1, he predestined you, dear Christian, not because he saw the kind of person we would be and not because he said you're deserving of it. In love, Deuteronomy 7, God set his grace upon Israel, not because they're the most numerous or successful, but because that's who God is. Divine grace to sinners cannot be understood. It doesn't have a reason. It reflects the way God is. This is not just God's sovereignty. This is God's grace. These are the doctrines of grace. God not only saves me apart from my works, He chooses you and me apart from our works. We have to give up on ourselves entirely in the matter of salvation. The church of Jesus was conceived by the triune God before the world was created. Doesn't that blow our minds? out of a mass of condemned humanity, a bride was chosen by the Father for the Son to be in real time and space, at a real moment in time, united to the Son by the Spirit. So that Christian, there was never a moment when the Father did not love you. Never. Even when we were his sworn enemies, he loved us. If you're a Christian today, it's because you're a loved gift from the Father to the Son from all eternity. That's why you're here. God's love for you did not begin when you believed. It did not begin when Christ died for you. It's from the foundation of the world. Your faith doesn't make God love you. Does that mean then, secondly, that God is unjust? See how Paul's Continuing now, Romans 9, 14. God's promise hasn't failed. His purpose according to election is fulfilled. Is there then not injustice with God? Is he arbitrary? Is God capricious? There's no reason in you that God chose you, right? You know that. But does that mean there's no reason at all? No. No. God has a reason for doing everything he does. The reason, though, doesn't lie in us. Here's how Michael Horton puts it. How would you feel if you had a loyal employee, if you had been a loyal employee, rather, in the same company for 30 years, so you've worked there a long time, and some young kid fresh out of college gets the same pay, title, and retirement as you? Come on, no way. How about if your younger brother wasted the family's inheritance on wine, women, and song and your father welcomed him back home with a party and gave him the same status in the house as you? By now, as Horton says, you probably realize this is talking of the Lord's parables. The laborers in the vineyard and the prodigal son. When it comes to salvation, there are no wages. The wages of sin is death. So if we want to talk about getting what we deserve, Horton says, we're in for a rough ride. Salvation's a gift, not a reward. Is election fair? Hardly. But who wants fairness in this matter? If God were to give everyone what we deserved, no one would be saved. God would be just to pass over all of us. Remember what grace is. We have no claim upon it. If we did, it would not be grace. It would be justice. We are born dead in sin. We saw that last week. So why should anyone be saved? That's really the question of Romans 9.15. What does it say? God quotes again from the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is Mount Sinai, the golden calf. Israel had sinned. And God goes to them and he says, I'm going to give you mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Which is what? Justice, wrath, hell, judgment. God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. God's name Yahweh is a name that shows he is free to show mercy to whom he will. That's who God is. So Romans 9:16 anticipates our next objection. Don't you see how Paul by the inspiration of the spirit is anticipating what we're going to think? All of us. So then, it doesn't depend on human will. It's not about our willing. It's not about our running. It's not about our striving. It's not about what family we're born into. It's not about our money or lack thereof. Romans chapter 9 picks up on John 1. We're born again how? By the grace and spirit of God, by the will of God. This has to do with compassion and mercy. It also has to do with justice. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. Now he goes to Exodus and talks about Pharaoh. He's talking here about the time, around the time of the sixth plague, although he could be talking about a number of things, the boils. And children, do you remember that God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, what? Let my people go. Pharaoh refused. God sends plagues. What's going on here? Well, Paul is interpreting this for us. He's saying God raised Pharaoh up, God raises up kings, he casts kings down. And the purpose of God raising Pharaoh up was what? To show God's power through the plagues that he sends. God didn't create evil. God never does evil. God never inclines anyone's heart to evil. But God brings good out of evil. Joseph to his brothers, you meant it for evil, Genesis 50. But God God meant it for good. But God had another purpose in raising up Pharaoh. What's that? To put him on the stage as an illustration of God's power and that God's name might be proclaimed through all the earth. There's a missionary purpose of God in Pharaoh in Exodus 9. That is tremendously encouraging. People like Rahab, knew God's name because of what God did in the time of Pharaoh to save his people from Egypt. And then it goes on. God hardens whom he wills to harden. That's the message to Pharaoh. God doesn't force Pharaoh to sin. And when it says that God will harden Pharaoh's hearts, it's a prophecy in both Exodus 4 and 7 that comes at the beginning of the narrative. So it's saying what will happen. And as you read through Exodus 4, 5, 7, 10, you see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart as well. Pharaoh's heart is sinful to begin with, as ours is. So God is not active in hardening Pharaoh in the same way he's active in softening the heart of Moses or any sinner that's saved. The Bible says God hardens hearts. It also says sinners harden their own hearts. But do you know that it never says that sinners soften their own hearts? God does that work of grace. This is common grace. One of the reasons for common grace is to restrain evil. All God has to do to accelerate the wickedness of Pharaoh is remove the restraint from him. The evil is there. Now, God turns Pharaoh over, like Romans 1, giving him up to his depravity, giving him to what he wants. It's a judicial act. Pharaoh gets justice. The people of Israel get mercy. So why does God still blame us? See how Paul's continuing here in this Very well-explained argument. If salvation is due to God's will, if we don't resist His will, then why would God blame people? And what does He say in Romans 9.20? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is not lament here. This is similar to when Job was Asking to put God in the dock. We must not interrogate God. This is a humbling moment, loved ones, for all of us. And he goes on to say, let's talk again about the Old Testament, this time Isaiah. Potter and clay. Kids, when you play with Play-Doh at home, does the Play-Doh talk back to you and tell you, don't make me to be a dinosaur. I want to be a bird. No, the Play-Doh is not the night at the museum where it comes to life. That's the picture here. The potter has the right to do what he wants with the clay. That's God. We're the clay. He's sovereign. And as he's talking about the clay, the whole lump is guilty. It's not neutral. So God is choosing some of his enemies by grace for salvation, leaving the rest, Esau, Pharaoh, and others, to the destiny that all of us would have chosen for ourselves were it not for God's grace in our lives. This is a big, fancy word, infralapsarianism. You say, now I'm done. (laughs) Where is lunch? I bring this up just as a brief side note. The canons of Dort teach this, infralapsarian, meaning God's decree of election is logically below or after the fall. This is talking about God's eternal decree. It's a mystery. We can't grasp it. God decreed the fall, yes. Divine election is a choice to save sinners, not a choice to save people who need to sin first in order to be saved. This is God's decree. The decree of God follows his decree to permit the fall. Otherwise, how else would mercy be mercy? Romans 9.15. That's difficult. So is this, double predestination. What does that mean? That's what Paul is saying here when he talks about pots of dishonorable use. They're made by God, he says, to what? Show forth his wrath. Predestination is a general term for determining the destiny of all peoples. There are two types of predestination, election and reprobation. Those who are predestined to salvation are called the elect. Those who are not are the reprobate, Jude 4. They're designated for condemnation. Reprobation is not God actively hardening in the way he actively regenerates. In election, God then actively regenerates his chosen people to bring them from death to life. It's all a work of God. The only thing we contribute is our sin. In reprobation, the root means God decrees to leave sinners in the fallen condition in which they are born. It's like a big pot of glue, one person says. If you take kids the top off of your glue and leave it off, what will happen to that glue? It'll harden. You don't have to go and change the substance. It will harden as it's left open so also God himself withholds the work of grace in the reprobate and leaves them to themselves. So nobody is sent by God to hell who believes in Christ. And nobody is dragged by God, kicking and screaming into heaven and saying, I don't want to do that. And nobody is in hell calling out for God to rescue them and have mercy on them in Jesus. That's why this matters. Why did God do this? Look at verses 23 and 24. To make known the riches of his glory. We can't lose sight of this. God's sovereign election from a people from all nations, going back to Romans 9, the church does not supplant Israel. It's the enlarging of Israel's tent because we are saved by faith in Christ, the true Israel of God. There's a wideness to God's mercy. Even as Esau and Edom have judgments pronounced against them, Amos sees the day when a remnant of Edom will be restored to the tabernacle of David, Amos chapter 9. In the New Testament, a remnant of Edomites seek the mercy of Christ, Mark 3. Jesus heals Joanna, a steward to the king of Edom, Herod. In the days of Christ, God has a remnant from Edom. That is how amazing his mercy is. He pours out his blessing on people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's important as we look at some questions and applications. Third, there's a lot that I would love for you to talk to me or others about if you have questions on this. These are just some of the things. What about free will? We make choices. We chose what to eat last night. I really am enjoying frozen fruit at night. Oh, I love frozen fruit. But maybe it was ice cream. Maybe tomorrow night it will be chocolate ice cream. We make those choices, and we can enjoy in Christ the freedom of being able to love to eat these foods. When it comes to salvation, do you remember our will from last week? It's an expression of character. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You belong to your father who? The devil. Your desires are his desires. We want to obey the one to whom we are bound. And a will that is born dead in sin does not have the moral ability to choose God, does not want to choose God, wants to obey sin and the devil. Yes, we have natural ability, we still have a will, we still make choices, but not the moral ability. The Arminian will say, God gives a measure of prevenient grace to every person, wiping out total depravity in everyone, to enable us then to choose God. Humbly speaking, the problem with that is there's not a place in Scripture that says that. The will Is dead in sin until God frees us from slavery to sin, changes our will, and brings us in regeneration to the new birth and trust in Jesus. Here's why this matters practically. We all see some people who trust in Christ and some people who don't. They may be in our home, in our family, among our friends, at school, in our neighborhoods. What's the ultimate reason for why some believe and others don't? There's two options. It's either God or us. There was an election this last week. Some people say, well, with election, the doctrine of the Bible, God gets a vote, Satan gets a vote, you cast the deciding vote. But loved ones... Well, it's true we make a lot of choices in life. When it comes to salvation, it's God's choice. His love, His mercy, His freedom, His initiative, His wisdom, His power. 1 John 4, it's not that we first loved God, but that He first, what? Loved us and sent His Son. It's in Christ. He's the mirror of election. Sent His Son to be the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sin. It's all in Christ. It's all what He done. Do you know what that does to our pride? It shrinks it. It should. There should be no proud, jerky Calvinists. There should be no cage stage, let's fight this out, you and me, one-on-one. When we understand really what grace is, we're humbled. The tragedy of all sin is it turns us from God. The double tragedy of pride is it turns us against God, attempting to lift ourselves above God. There are mysteries when it comes to election. Calvin said, when God makes an end of teaching, it behooves us to cease from wishing to be wise. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Election's a labyrinth. We ought not climb into the secret things of God, but be content with what he's revealed to us. This matters for our holiness. Do you know that the doctrine of election doesn't lead to loose living? By the grace of God, it leads to holiness. Romans 8. Those for God foreknew, he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son. The Arminian argument says that God looked down the corridor of time, saw who would choose him, and on the basis of who he saw would choose him, chose that person. Everyone who takes the Bible seriously believes in election. The question is, are the elect chosen unto faith or in view of their faith? Is election unconditional or conditional? What would God see if he looks down the corridor of time? He'd see dead sinners who are not turning to him by faith and repentance unless he first chooses and saves us. 1 Peter, God chose us not because he saw that we would be holy, but so that we would be holy. See that? So it's not that God saw, look at how great they're going to be, and chose them. It's that God chose us so that by his grace, we would be holy a long time back i was watching an old basketball game lunchtime i wasn't married yet it was in 1988 and as you see an old game you know who's going to win the armenian view of theology says god picks the winner i still watch those old games now i try to get my wife and kids to watch them and it doesn't go all that well but there is no winner We are all dead in sins. God chooses us in Christ for knowledge because he what? For loves us. That's what Romans 8 means. It's not informational. It's those people he for loves. The result is a passion for missions. This does not leave people frozen and chosen and inward facing and we don't want to share the gospel. It empowers missions. Because as Jesus says in John 6, all the Father gives to me will come to me, election. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the well-meant offer of the gospel. We call upon everyone to believe and trust in Jesus and be saved. Who has the right to come to Christ? We are all entitled to come to Christ the most vile of sinners, the most foul. God ordains the ends and the means, prayer. This is one reason that prayer is a part of the heartbeat of our life as a church. Praying for God to save His elect in Minnetonka, in Eden Prairie, in the Twin Cities, around the world, in Turkey. And God himself does that because there's an assurance that we have when we believe in this doctrine of election. You might think, am I elect? What if I'm not elect? That's not a question to ask. The question to ask is, do I trust in Jesus? Not to look inward, not to seek into the hidden things of God, but am I trusting in what Christ has done for me, in who he is for me? Am I believing that God sent his son to die for me? On the flip side, don't ever say you're not elect. That's the vicious lie of Satan. Satan sends those arrows saying, God wouldn't love you. You're not chosen. God's a tyrant. That's a lie from the devil. The Bible says we draw assurance from this doctrine of election. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. Look to him. He is your righteousness. He is your salvation. Look to him even in the deepest sorrow of life. Some of you have suffered the horrible pain of the death of a child, an infant, a baby in the womb. Some of you, perhaps, more than once. What happens to the children of believers who die? Those children are not born innocent. Like us, they're born dead in sin. There's no such thing as an age of accountability. The Bible doesn't teach that. The canons of Dort rightly say, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. It's not because of a false hope on the innocence of the child. It's because of the mercy of God. His covenant promises that are yes and amen in Christ. The same is true, loved ones, as we suffer the pain of disabilities, and perhaps some children have disabilities, that deprive their parents of the joy of seeing them be able to exercise faith and repentance. The Bible, as summarized in the Westminster Confession, reminds us that God's Spirit can raise from spiritual death in an extraordinary way anyone whom the Father has chosen in the Son. The Westminster says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. There's a pastoral comfort in the gospel here in this. What does this lead to? this assurance of salvation, this purpose of God in election. God setting His love on us from before the foundation of the world is for the exaltation of God's glory. It humbles us. No human would invent such a thing. It leads us to glorify God in all we do. It's a spark in our hearts that fuels worship and adoration. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace, mercy, and love. In love you predestined us not because of what we have done, but for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will. Father, may this grand gospel lead us even now to sing of your great grace and mercy as we worship you, one true triune God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.